Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. Today I've got episode 99. 99 of these things. Thanks guys for hanging in there with me this long. Um, yeah, I'd like to say I never thought I'd make it this far, but you and I both know that I can talk long enough to fill in 99 episodes and probably 99 more. Today we're going to talk again about aviation. You guys remember when I went to Kitty Hawk and I kind of waxed philosophical about the whole thing, I threw it out there and said, if people who actually know what they're talking about instead of me want to let me know, well, somebody did. Um, A pilot and a person who works in the aviation industry, uh, Alex, will be joining us on the episode to kind of talk a little bit about wood in aviation. But first, I want to get through some normal segment type things here, just because I've got some stuff piling up here. Um, Got some feedback. I was talking about the live oak, specifically the California or the coastal live oak a while ago, and I could not remember the botanical name or for that matter, if it was separate from the Quercus virginiana. And it is, in fact, the Quercus agrifolia. Yeah. I'm very glad somebody sent that in because oaks are one of those things where there's so many different species and there tend to be different cultivars of those species as well. Lots of different names and species and subspecies. And I like to try to be as accurate as possible because they do have some slightly different working properties. It's not something to get too caught up in, but let's be accurate. So thank you to all the people who wrote in and told me that it is actually Quercus agrifolia. Um, Some industry stuff that I found particularly interesting We've talked about Russian plywood in the past, and I've talked about FSC and kind of how that whole works, uh, that whole schema works. Well, FSC has killed all of the chain of custody and production certificates for Russia. Now, this is particularly interesting. While I support this, because certainly we need to do something to try to discourage the Russian-Ukrainian war, at the same time, this does shine a light a little bit on the political quagmire that is environmental certification schemas. Now, they supposedly, and I'm saying supposedly not because I doubt it, because I haven't dug into enough, but FSC supposedly is citing several instances where due diligence in sustainability and the practices in sustainability are no longer being followed, and that is why they're pulling the certificates. But the fact of the matter is, chain of custody provided through FSC and the ability to produce FSC credits as a forestry management um, certified body is not really about politics, and it's not really about whether they've invaded one country or another. So the Russian army could be doing all kinds of unspeakable things, and some forester that's out in Siberia could be sustainably harvesting birch. Um, For FSC to pull that certification based upon a political action that's happening somewhere else by the military does kind of make you wonder, is FSC smoke and mirrors? Um, That is a volatile statement. I recognize it's a volatile statement. And I don't know how I feel about that statement because as I've said on this show before, you know, the line's got to be drawn and this is still going on. And, you know, I feel like the, the, the industry as a whole would be better off if we could stop having so much of our reliance on good quality plywood coming from Russian birch. So certainly anything that's going to like help foster additional suppliers to produce birch is a good thing, but it kind of casts doubt on all of these certification scheme. And it goes back to some of the CITES um, Convention of Parties commentary I had about the political nature of whether or not a species is actually endangered and whether or not it actually needs to be regulated and whether or not political pressure says it's going to be regulated. So this is another one that kind of pulls back the curtain a little bit and makes you realize that it's not all about the environmental stuff. 
Maybe rightfully so. Maybe whatever pressure can be brought to bear in order to improve sustainability could be a good thing. But that's just my um, my my editorial commentary on that particular topic. Um, I haven't really gone into FSC in a great deal uh, in the past and probably will and should in a future episode. Uh, I can warn you in advance that will be a volatile episode. It's probably one of the reasons I haven't gone into it in great detail up until now, because it will uh, certainly polarize a lot of people. In other news, uh, this one I found particularly interesting. Some lumber uh, barges, vessels, were finally discovered on the bottom of Lake Superior. And there's been uh, several lumber companies coming, you know, the felling material in Canada, milling in, uh, in Canada, and then shipping across the Great Lakes into the United States markets. And of course, you know, the Great Lakes have all kinds of shipwrecks. Talk about terrible, terrible weather conditions up there and sea conditions. And this was an instance where we knew that there were some shipments, the, the manifests and all of the, the logs showed that these massive lumber shipments had sunken somewhere and they finally found them. And there's some great video from the, the ROV sub that uh, shows like the lumber on the deck. And it's actually a pretty long video of this. It's worth uh, watching if you're at all into like shipwrecks and salvage and recovery. It's very fun to watch, but kind of interesting. One wonders if some of this can be retrieved and will we see a boon on sunken lumber? I definitely would like to know. And believe me, I'm going to be watching this story and see if there's a company that gets behind it. And if there is a company that gets behind it, oh, you better believe I'm getting them on the show because I think that would be fascinating. So let's move on to our featured species uh, segment. And I'm going to throw in the, uh, the obligatory thank you patrons for supporting the show here because I've got a new feature coming here. Um, for my walnut tier subscribers at patreon.com slash lumber update, I'm going to start offering stickers, species, featured species information stickers. Now you can use these as stickers and stick under the wall in your shop, or you can just leave the backer on and kind of keep it as like a collectible card. But each one of these stickers, it's kind of bumper sticker sized, imagine it oriented vertically, and it's gonna provide some images of the particular species we're talking about, but also the major technical bullet points, technical specification bullet points, some alternate species you might consider, some basic appearance type things, and maybe some fun facts about the species. I'm actually having a lot of fun with this and I'm looking forward to doing this. So all of the Walnut tier subscribers that's at the $8 a month level will be receiving these stickers. So basically, now's your chance. If you're not already a Walnut tier subscriber, come support the show. I will thank you with this really, I think, fun, but also useful sticker that you can uh, put up in your shop. Or as I said, keep them and collect them all. They'll be as hot as pogs or Pokemon cards or Whatever, I seriously dated myself with the pog uh, statement there. So let's talk about the featured species of, we'll just call it the month. Uh, right now I'm gonna be focusing on one of these a month. And I talked about uh, Oregon myrtle last time and I wanted to go kind of back to common because there's always such a focus on kind of unusual species, but you know, there's a lot of common species we work with every day. And one of my favorite species is black cherry or Prunus serotina. Now there's a lot of variants, not variants, well variants, but different species of black cherry, like the bird cherry, uh, the choke cherry, uh, of course the Japanese cherry. Um, a lot of them have 
similar appearance, similar working characteristics. They may produce lumber quality uh, wood a little bit differently based upon the growth of the tree. For instance, the Japanese cherry is more of an ornamental tree. It doesn't grow very big. It branches very, very quickly. It's, it's bred for its flowers. So it's not really a lumber tree, whereas the black cherry is a lumber tree. To some extent, the bird cherry might be a lumber tree as well. The choke cherry, you can make a case for that. It's one of those things where when you buy black cherry, or you just, just to say you buy cherry as a hardwood, you might end up with a couple of different species depending upon where it was sourced from. But here's the other thing. The geographic range of the cherry tree is substantial. It goes from sea to shining sea here in North America. You will also find it all across Europe in a very a variety of different species, but also the prunus serotina you will find all across Europe as it's been planted there since it was quote unquote discovered here in the new world. Um, sweet cherry is another one you're going to see a fair bit. Oh, I'm forgetting uh, the sweet cherry prunus avium. That's the bird cherry. That's right. The prunus avium is another one that you're going to find. Uh, bird cherry, sweet cherry, also sometimes known as the European cherry is a one that's going to show up there. But if you start looking at the technical specifications, you'll find that a lot of them are very similar. Some of it is just based upon its rage and to some extent about kind of how big the tree grows. So in terms of lumber cherries, the, the bird cherry, again, also known as the sweet cherry, um, and the black cherry, Prunus avium and Prunus serotina are the, the major movers. Uh, I can't remember choke cherry. Bear with me one second here. Let me look up choke cherry. I'm trying to remember what that uh, botanical name is, uh, if I remember correctly. Oh, I'm not finding it, but that's what happens when you're trying to Google something while you're actually recording at the same time. Uh, Prunus virginiana. So like the uh, live oak, the Quercus virginiana, this is the Prunus virginiana. That's another one where you can get some lumber out of it. I've got a choke cherry just down the street. In fact, I've actually built several things from choke cherry. My uh, father-in-law had a choke cherry tree taken down that was actually the very first log that I milled into boards uh, before Matt Cremona was a twinkle in his parents' eye. Okay, maybe not that long ago, but uh, I milled that into boards a uh, long, long time ago and actually still have a couple pieces in my lumber shed. Very, very, very similar to what you would commercially buy as black cherry. So Prunus virginiana, uh, Prunus avium, Prunus serotina, uh, and I'm sure there's a couple species that I'm missing there. From an appearance perspective, cherry. It's reddish brown, but cherry is particularly photosensitive. So when you first mill black cherry, I'm, I keep calling it black cherry, let's just call it cherry because there are a lot of variances we've already established. When you first mill cherry, it's gonna be very, very, very light pink. But put it in the sun for like three hours and you're going to get that lovely brown kind of reddish brown color coming out very quickly. Like one of those things where leave like a tool, leave a wrench on the surface and move it after five minutes and you'll be able to see the outline of that wrench. I bring this up because quote unquote cherry furniture is often this deep, deep, dark red, like a, you know, heavily stained mahogany. And why that started to become known as cherry furniture, I never know, but it's something that you run into a lot where somebody comes to you and says, I want you to build uh, a chest of drawers and I want it in cherry. 
and you show them the cherry and they're like, no, no, I want it in cherry. And you're like, no, this is cherry. And they're like, no, the deep dark red. So there is still some misconception about what cherry looks like. And you will even find some stains out there that have cherry in the name. They may have some other modifier in there, like antique cherry or whatever. And it will be really, really dark red brown. I'm currently sitting in front of my tool cabinet that was built from cherry more than 10 years ago, and it has aged through the sun coming through the window very nicely, and it is a lovely red-brown color. In fact, the drawer fronts on my case are made out of genuine mahogany, and the genuine mahogany and the black cherry, this is actual prunus eratina, have blended nicely. Now, the mahogany is still a deeper, darker red-brown, so maybe that's where it came from. Maybe the really, really antique read dirty, you know, hundreds of years of furniture polished furniture does actually look dark red and maybe that's where it came from. But it's important to realize, and I think on modern aesthetics, cherry is a much lighter color than that deep dark red that most people, that will just say the layman often thinks of as cherry. But just remember, when you first mill that stuff, it is going to be very, very light pink. It is a medium hardness wood. Uh, it's jank hardness can be measured kind of anywhere from about 850 up to maybe 1100. The European cherries are gonna be at the higher end of things. The black cherry, the prunus seratina is gonna be like 850 to 900 foot pounds in that range. Very, very friendly wood to work with. As a hand tool user, I love it. It's great to work with. Um, but it is a diffuse porous wood with quite small pores, very small rays, but not invisible rays. Like if you look at hard maple and you look at a rift or, or specifically a quarter piece of hard maple, you'll get kind of a hint kind of a hint of a speckling of medullary rays. Cherry is gonna have larger rays to the point where it can be a really cool, attractive look. You will be able to see those rays, but they won't be like crazy, you know, red oak type medullary rays spanning inches across the board. This will be almost like a little speckled or dappled look that looks really cool in a quarter sawn piece used as like a panel, um, like a frame and panel or something like that. I have some experience with this on the blanket chest I built out of curly cherry for the sides and quartered cherry for the top. That medullary ray is certainly visible, but it's not like in your face. It just adds some real interest to the whole thing. Um, that is because of the kind of medium-sized nature of those rays. Those rays are tightly spaced together. The pores are tightly um, tightly spaced together, but again, it's diffuse pores, so they're all over the place. The pores are quite small, which leads to that somewhat... Um, uh, denser feel. You know, if you were to take a, a, a another like good hand tool, what actually is a good example, if you took something like black walnut and black cherry and put them side by side, the Janka hardnesses are almost identical, but the semi-ring porous nature of black walnut and the diffuse porous nature of cherry lends to the very different feel. Although the hardness can be measured almost identical from a foot-pound perspective, the actual real-world feel, taking a chisel and driving it into cherry versus driving it into to black walnut, the black walnut will feel much softer than the black cherry. Now, likewise, if you took a, a piece of hard maple and a piece of black cherry and put them side by side and drove a chisel into it, you would see a marked difference between those as well. But it's important, I bring up that distinction um, because this is a, is a very nice, agreeable, softer hardwood, but um, it's closed poured or tight poured, diffuse poured, small poured, which means it finishes really, really nicely. No need for pore filling in this particular instance. You can bring up a nice high luster on the whole thing. 
Cherry is prone to gum pockets. So you'll find those kind of dark to like uh, black to darkish red amber gum pockets that uh, appear in it. And I want to say that actually is a defect through NHLA. I, 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 I might be misquoting. It doesn't really matter. I personally love them. Um, and in well-managed forests and higher grade black cherry, you're not going to find a lot of gum pockets, um, but it is a, a distinct feature you will find on a lot of the cherries are those gum pockets. They're perfectly stable. It's not like a knot or anything like that. Um, it can add a little bit of interest to uh, a relatively plain surface. The sapwood is a stark contrast, very light, creamy with like a hint of yellow in the sapwood. And cherry, it's not a huge tree and it has a lot of sap. Sapwood is not a defect, so an FAS cherry board can have as much sapwood as you want in it. But if you're really looking to get rid of the sap, a lot of lumber yards are now selling, um, they will sell an all heart cherry board, or you might see an 80-20 where it's 80% heart, 20% sap. You will see 90-10 in some instances. Those are just different kind of modifiers put on the FAS grade, because again, FAS does not defect sapwood. For me personally, um, I love the heartwood, but I do love a little bit of the sapwood thrown in. The contrast is there, but it's almost more of a complement than a contrast. Like the creamy color of walnut sapwood versus the deep chocolate brown of walnut, that's a contrast. This is pinkish reddish brown to kind of a creamy color, which really adds a nice complement over contrast. It's one of the reasons that cherry for the longest time has been a major, major cabinet and furniture wood. And that's where you'll find the majority of its usage today. The next big usage, or probably the first big usage these days, is in flooring. A lot of cherry being used in flooring. It's hard enough. Um, because the tree itself is a little bit smaller, uh, because the more ornamental trees branch very quickly and you can't get a lot of clear material out of it, um, using it like number two common grade lumber in shorter and narrower pieces for flooring is a perfect use for cherry. I, I still think probably the most common usage is going to be in furniture and cabinetry and certainly veneer for things like cherry plywood, which of course would go to cabinetry, heavily on cabinetry and for furniture work as well. Modulus of rupture is uh, about 15,000 um, foot-pounds per square inch. Uh, modulus of elasticity is uh, 1.5 uh, million foot-pounds per square inch. Those numbers in, you know, as I've said before, they don't really mean much in abstract, but it gives you some idea to compare against other species. If you have experience with another species, you can compare those numbers and get a good idea of it. Now, movement-wise... Um, this actually moves a fair bit, and you hear about a lot of people complaining about cherry movement. The tangential to radial ratio is 1.6, which is pretty high if you think about it. Tangentially, it can move 8 to 9%. Radially, it's still going to move about 5%. That's one of the higher radial numbers you run into. So it's not an unruly wood. It's not going to go crazy on you, but it is something it's important to have well-dried cherry or at least um, acclimated cherry when you're working with it. And you need to kind of plan for it when you're building, you know, moving parts and things like drawers and doors to plan for that movement. Because it does have um, not only a fair bit of movement in both radial and tangential planes, but the delta between those, uh, aka the TR ratio, is kind of large as well. Um, density and weight, I'm going to kind of lump those together here. We're talking about uh, 40 pounds per cubic foot, which doesn't really mean a whole lot because how many people actually have a cubic foot of wood. But here again, compare that with some of the other species you're used to. 
um, and you'll find that it weighs about the same as soft maple. It's a little bit heavier than something like black walnut, and that can really clue you in on how easy or hard it is to work. In this case, cherry is extremely easy to work with. Big, 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 big fan. The beauty of it can't really be denied. Its ability to be finished and to not require pore filling and to take on that nice luster without you know, high grits of sanding is really nice. Cherry being a somewhat gnarly tree. Now here again, grown in forest type concessions, you will find certainly examples where the tree is growing straight and it's being pruned and grown for lumber purposes. But ultimately, since cherry is kind of an ornamental tree in many instances, and it is a fruit tree for that matter, it's specifically um, grown. It's a black cherry tree. It's grown for its cherries. You know, we like our cherries to put on top of our Shirley temples and things like that. It is, um, it can be kind of gnarly. It can be kind of curly. It's very common to find curly figure in cherry. It's also very common to find what some people might just call blotch. Um, and that is blotch, you know, one man's blotch is another man's figure, right? So that is indicative of its kind of um, variable density, if you will. That variability in the density is, um, you know, what I think makes it a little bit easier to work. The areas where it is dense, it can be pretty hard. And the areas where it's less dense, obviously it's it's less hard. So the same reason, that sounded like a very obvious statement, but the case I was making before where walnut is gonna feel easier to work than cherry because walnut has larger pores, has a little bit more dead air in it, the variability that you will find in cherry, I think it offsets the harder parts and the harder parts offset the softer parts. But because it's a diffuse porous wood, because its density is relatively harder and the rays are smaller and the pores are smaller, you get a very homogenized wood to work. So that offsetting nature of that less dense stuff is homogenous enough that you get just consistency across the board. Where the inconsistency comes in is when you're applying finish. And that quote unquote blotch or that curly figure that you may see is brought on by that variability in the density. So be aware of that. You might love it, you might hate it. If you hate it, cherry is a great opportunity to pre-seal with something like a shellac wash coat or any kind of blotch control, blotch control TM from Charles Neal and friends. Um, glue size can be useful for this as well. It's uh, um, But for the most part, pretty easy to finish. You're gonna have absolutely no problems gluing it all. Um, yeah really one of my favorite species to work with. The tree itself, when grown from a lumber perspective, you can expect it to get three feet in diameter, if not up to five feet in diameter for the really, really big ones. But uh, most of the lumber trees we're getting from, you're gonna find them 60 to 80 feet tall. They've been known to grow up to 100 feet tall before. Um, it's not the biggest tree in the world. It's more of a medium-sized tree. It can be a little bit more shade tolerant than some of the bigger guys, the oaks and the maples. So it does tend to grow in uh, what uh, dendrolysis, what foresters call the understory. Um, it fills in the spaces underneath the big monstrous trees. So it's a vital, vital part of any forest environment. For those that are grown in the forest, the rest of you may find are grown in rows and plantations or in groves when producing fruit. Some alternate species you might look at here, alder out on the West Coast is often known as the poor man's cherry. Although these days the cost of cherry has plummeted to the point where I'm not really sure that uh, 
cherry's that much richer than alder anymore. I want to say that they're only about a 10 to 15% difference between alder and cherry these days. Another possible alternative in that color vein, a little bit pinker, might be Madrone, also out west. Similar working properties, Madrone's going to be a little bit harder. Poplar, believe it or not, is a great alternative. I have, from a workability perspective, poplar's a little bit easier to work, although maybe a little bit stringier, but very similar um, feel where you're routing it or whether you're hand chiseling it or something like that. And poplar can actually be disguised to look like cherry relatively easily with very minimal application of dye. That same homogenized nature of poplar carries over into cherry and you can really get that same look. Sweet gum is another one that you'll find um, a little bit streakier than cherry, but in some of the more ornamental cherries, you'll find that the sweet gum and those ornamental cherries tend to look very much alike, but some of the same color tones you're going to run into. As I said, sweet gums Actually, I would say sweet gum might be a little bit more interesting. But remember, cherry, the prunus genus as a whole, these are fruit woods. So other things to look at are apricot, um, plum, pear. Pear doesn't look like it. Pear is, is very, very blonde wood. Um, but plum and apricot are going to have that similar orange cast and very similar working properties. Both of those, um, those fruit woods, apricot and plum, are going to be uh, harder than, than cherry. I think cherry is one of the softer ones of the fruit woods. Um, apple to some expect, although apple I think is in the rose family. I'm not, I can't remember the, the genus of apple off the top of my head, but uh, apricot, plum, sweet gum, poplar, madrone, and alder are all great alternative species. And I, I mean alternative, not so much in I can't get cherry because you ought to be able to get cherry anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world for that matter. But if you're looking for complementary species, you're looking to add a little bit of interest. Maybe you're building a frame and panel door and you're building your rails and styles out of black cherry and you want a little bit of pop, a little bit of interest. Well, maybe put a sweet gum panel in the middle or a madrone panel in the middle. That complementary thing that's going to really allow you to, to see a little bit of difference, but not that much difference, you know, so you get that more cohesive unit. That's all I got to say. Well, I shouldn't say that. I could say a lot more about cherry. It's definitely one of my favorite species, which is I wanted to make sure that I included it before I go down a rabbit hole with a bunch of, of the more obscure species. So there we go. Um, that's my, uh, my spiel <laughs> on black cherry. I would love to hear from you guys in the future. If I'm missing things, not only in black cherry, but if there's specific aspects of the featured species that you want me to cover, I've had people ask about cost. That can be particularly difficult because the cost varies so much. But your, your measuring stick here, at least right now, is you'll find that cherry can be about 10% more expensive than alder. It has gone substantially more than that in the past. I would say cherry is about half the price of walnut these days. Cherry is pretty much right now, it is on par with the maples, the hard maples and the soft maples. Um, the Oak, specifically white oak, has gone above cherry. Uh, white oak now can be almost 30 to 40% more expensive than cherry. And this is all right now because cherry is at a particular low. As this is being recorded in the spring of 2023, cherry is at, a, at almost an historical low. So I will do my best to relate these things, but just recognize these numbers fluctuate a fair bit and they also fluctuate regionally. Hopefully, however, with the wide geographic range of cherry, you won't see that much regional fluctuation. Um, but fluctuation as it relates to other species is always going to be a moving target. I will do my best to kind of nail those down in, in future species as we highlight them. So that being said, let's move on to the main segment. This is going to be a long episode, but hey, 
It'll be fun. Um, I want to welcome Alex Lefebvre on the show. Alex, as I said earlier, is a pilot. He also works for a large aviation manufacturer. Uh, he knows his stuff, a bit of a history nut like me, and we had a great conversation about the history of wood in aviation. So Alex Lefebvre is here. Alex, I'm going to call you an expert. I'm going to put you on the spot and call you an expert because not only are you a pilot, but you're a woodworker and you work in the aviation industry. So um, yeah, I, he sent me this great email about how wood is being used now um, for like kit planes, but then also the commercial side of things. So Alex, uh, welcome to the show. Glad to have you here. I'm glad to glad to talk airplanes. I can do it all day. <laughs> right? Yeah, you find that that Venn diagram. You can talk woodworking and airplanes. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's good, good to go. Yeah. So um, you had told me you sent me this great email and. Uh, actually a really, really cool attachment. I'm actually going to include that attachment in the show notes, which is something like wood in the aviation industry. And it's one of those great old documents that, you know, it's a scanned image and it's got, first of all, a lot of technical properties of the common woods used in the aviation industry, which we can find those, you know, places like the wood database, but some really interesting paragraphs on the application of a variety of woods. And not surprisingly, there's a huge number of species being used, and a lot of them are being used in plywood type applications. And I had, you know, I had several people who wrote in about um, the, the uh, what is it, the, the Hercules, the, um, the spruce goose, spruce. Um, and how, you know, it was actually made out of birch plywood using the Dura mold process. And even today, I think plywood seems to be ubiquitous with the whole thing. So let's kind of go back to the beginning, you know, well, not the beginning. I talked about the Wright brothers. We get to like 1910. Um, and certainly now, you know, the Wright flyer is on version 10. Mm -hmm. Multiple people have used this. Military has taken over the design and started expanding it. And this is really when like innovation starts to take off. Well, I mean, certainly innovation was in the hands of a few minds, but now that like the problem has been solved, you know, they say it's always easier to like tweak the problem and make it better when somebody's already solved it. So talk to me about like, well, I don't know, we'll say 1910, 1915, like World War I. Um, mm -hmm. What can you tell me about the wood being used for like the early biplanes and how we turned it into a manufacturing industry? Sure. So, you know, early on with the Wright brothers and the early pioneers, they were using a lot of lot of their local woods. I think the Wright brothers used a lot of red spruce and and ash. And I, I know there's one letter that that the Wrights sent to a a, a lumber uh, mill in West Virginia, lamenting that they couldn't find good quality red spruce in Ohio, and they were looking to order I think 500 board feet or or something like that that would meet meet their grade. And I think that that was a a common problem at the time finding good straight lumber that would meet the grade and, and be light enough and really light enough was often the, the bigger, bigger concern. Yeah. The Wright brothers, you know, they did spruce for, for the straight, uh, the straight members and, and, and white ash for anything that was bent, which is interesting. Cause if you look at wood database, white ash doesn't have a significantly higher modulus of, of elasticity from red spruce. Um, my best guess is just the spruce that they were able to get had had bad grain run out or, or, or wasn't clear enough. And, and when they bent it, they were getting failure. 
Well, the, the key there is you're talking spruce is a softwood, which is a totally yes. different internal structure than ash. Ash being a ring porous wood, um, for the same reason that the human femur is a porous bone, it has greater strength due to that porosity. Mm-hmm. But the fact that ash has those pores neat or those those yeah, those pores neatly ordered in rings, i.e., you know, a ring porous wood, and the the internal structure, the medullary ray structure, all that stuff that makes a hardwood a hardwood. While the, the the bending strength and the stiffness, you know, is the same on paper, when you combine that with that other structure and just the way hardwoods grow. A good right. example of this when we're talking bending strength, when a when a tree branches, or or even better, when a tree grows on a hillside, um, there's a fancy term for this, like thigmomorphic genesis or strophism or something like that in botany worlds but uh, a softwood say the tree is leaning off to the right a softwood will add more wood on the right side to kind of push up that bend to support the, the the lean from underneath a hardwood will put more wood on the other side and pull from the top um, and it's an entirely different entirely different structure having to do with the, the fibers and the tensile um, uh, hardwood doing better under tension being pulled and softwood doing better under compression being pushed. That, uh, in my understanding, I'm not a you know material scientist, but you know I play one on TV. That's <laughs> really where that comes down to. That's why ash is better as a bending wood mm-hmm. and as a as a um, structural like shock resistant like that that um pdf you sent me aviation wood in the aviation industry right. talks about ash being used for like landing struts yes um uh wheel struts things like that that are going to take a you know pounding and need to flex but spring back and the fact that 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 kind of inherent growth structure when you talk about a tree leaning is what really makes that difference Sorry, I just totally went off on a on a rant. No, 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 no. That, that's yeah. that's that's great input, and and I, I appreciate that. But yeah, so so they they use spruce when they could <laughs> to, to 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 save weight, and, and ash where they had to, and it really I think was uh, a matter of weight. They were operating on a twelve horsepower engine that weighed one hundred eighty pounds, and mm-hmm. that was huge for for the day. Like it was crazy they were able to get. 12 horsepower out of only a 180 pound engine. It was the first engine that I'm aware of that had a cast aluminum case. And you, you fast forward 40 years to when my airplane was built and it's a 65 horsepower engine that weighs 10 pounds less. Um, huh. Fast forward to today and Rotax just released an engine that weighs 190 pounds. So 10 pounds more than the Wright's engine and, and makes 160 horsepower. So Lord. they were, <laughs> so, so weight then and, and today uh, in, in the jets that I work on, weight is still, you know, we will fight over ounces and pounds and, and the amount of dollars that manufacturers uh, for all the materials in their airplane will spend, save a pound is, is astronomical. Um, hmm. So, so to get, to you know the root of your question you get kind of into the late 1910s uh and into the next decade and uh, we kind of see some uh upsetting in the in the you know the global politics and the uh u.s army army corps of engineers not corps of engineers sorry the army air corps is, is uh developed and they start placing these orders for these airplanes and developing airplanes so uh, as part of that they need to find a uh a suitable lumber to build these airplanes with metallurgy isn't there yet to, 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 to make these airplanes out of steel or aluminum. And they would also be too heavy based off the horsepower of the engines. So 
these right. manufacturers turned to the shipbuilding industry and said, you know, shipbuilding industries for spars and masts have kind of similar requirements to to bending strength and and, and lightness that we have for uh, for airplanes. So they went to the same tree. They went to the to the western coast of of Canada and Alaska to the old growth Sitka spruce. And that mm-hmm. kind of became the the wood of choice for the industry when it comes to solid wood, and and persisted you know through the 1970s. Um, my airplane was built in 1946, and it still has its original 1946 Sitka spruce spars that hold Ooh, the wood. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, and a key distinction there, while there's a lot of similar properties between the red spruce, again, growing mostly in eastern North America, Sitka spruce being a coastal, you know, BC, Alaska is the the tree itself the Mm -hmm. the sitka spruce is something like 30 to 40 percent taller um and spruce in general is like arrow straight you know think of think of a lot of christmas trees you know but really really big um it's got that central trunk and all the spruce does is grow straight there's no branching just straight up and it drops its early branches uh i want to say around the two-year mark i could be wrong on that and it just goes straight up. And you can imagine in those old growth forests, you know, trying to get up to that sunlight, you get these like 80, 100, 160 foot arrow straight trunks mm-hmm. that all straight grain, you know. And and since it dropped those branches like in the early couple of years, you might have some naughty, some weird squirrely grain like in the first maybe foot to two foot down at the bottom of the trunk. Um, which also probably has a fair bit of um, tension and maybe even some shake and things over the years. So from like the three foot mark to the 160 foot mark, <laughs> you've got clear, straight grain, beautiful, beautiful wood. Um, so yeah, perfect, perfect for you know a blossoming um, industry. That's amazing. Yeah, and I believe the Army Corps uh, they they set up the spruce production division in in the pacific northwest in 1910 or 1911 so it's an entire division of the army that was just sourcing and milling spruce to build airplanes sure and then of course you know perfect timing because it suddenly became a big deal with world Mm -hmm. war one correct um but uh you know can can you tell me anything about like let's talk snoopy and the red baron here um (laughs) sorry when people think world war one that's where i go um so we're not that far off from what the Wright brothers built. I mean, obviously we have more of a fuselage at mm-hmm. that point where the Wright brothers is essentially just a wing, you know, they're laying oh. on top of the wing. Yep. Um, what, what else has changed here? Or let's put this another way. How much of it was still like canvas and fabric and how much of it was actually ribs and spar? Sure. So yeah. So the Wright brothers very early biplane with a canard. That that's kind of the the, the tail that's in front of the airplane is, is uh-huh. called a canard. Uh, was there uh, a key difference was certainly the way it looks, but also the way it was controlled. They they warped the wings to control right. the, the airplane. Uh, and and once you get into the 1910s and and developing the World War One aircraft, you start to get into more of what we think today when you say, well, when the lady on the news says. A Cessna, because because Cessna is the only single engine airplane to ever exist. If you're the mainstream news, right? Yeah, right. Everything is called a Cessna. So sure. you know it, it has a traditional tail, traditional wings, ailerons for control, elevator, and, and, and essentially kind of the same aerodynamics that we we play with today when it comes mm-hmm. to comes to airplanes. 
but certainly still a truss structure for the uh, for the fuselage and and wooden spars, which is just the, the the beam of the wing and truss ribs, which are typically quarter inch square stock that are you know bent and trussed to make that rib shape covered with uh, typically either Irish linen or cotton in the in the in the World War II era. Sorry, World War One era. Um, right. but, so yeah, so the structure, and if you look at any of these wooden airplanes, they're just gorgeous. Before they would go and ruin them and put put fabric on them, so they'll actually fly. Um, the 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 structure and the craftsmanship of them, but yeah, it's still just a, a skeleton of wood with uh, fabric covering them. So even that fuselage and the area around the the pilot was essentially a wood frame with fabric. Essentially, there might have been, and I, I don't know how quickly the the plywood industry caught up. You know, for the World War One, uh, I wouldn't know about that, but certainly later designs, the cockpit would have plywood around it uh, for some extra rigidity, but it's not going to do anything for a bullet. We're talking plywood that's uh, an eighth of an inch thick at at thickest. Uh, you know, eighth inch thick aircraft plywood be very thick plywood. Yeah. No, and and I can't. I think that's kind of where I'm going. Is I wonder at what point we started moving away from the fabric and. I mean, certainly fabric, it was light. It was really lightweight. And you're right, like even the plywood that was used wasn't really there for like a structural purpose. Um, at least I don't think so. I mean, I would imagine from an aerodynamic perspective, it would be easier, you know, to have a more rigid material. Um, you know, and I'm going, I'm thinking of that uh, uh, Howard Hughes movie with Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, where he was uh, talking about flush rivets and what a big deal it was. And right. it never really occurred to me up to that point, all the rivets were like, you know, sticking out. And from yes. an aerodynamic perspective, that was terrible. Um, so I, I would imagine at some point somebody said, you know, we can we can get a, a more aerodynamic structure by using a more rigid uh, material. Uh, but yeah, I guess the, the weight will always be the factor there. The weight's the factor, and certainly in World War One, they were they were still figuring out how to make them easily controlled and 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 drag. They were the draggiest airplanes, you know, wire braced. Uh, that uh, I don't think plywood would have done them a whole lot of good as far as <laughs> aerodynamics to, to to make a meaningful meaningful right. difference, you know. And we lost more, we lost almost as many pilots to training in World War One than we did to actual, you know. <laughs> combat I've, I've actually heard that statistic before yeah it's not and, and i believe it too you know it's like yep. would you go up in one of those things it's kind of terrifying yep we, we were trying to figure out how to build airplanes still and also trying to figure out how to fly them you know so. yeah right right so but but that then we were i mean again like you said those airplanes in world war one weren't that dissimilar from like you said you know the 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 commonly named Cessna, you know, it had that, you know, the tail and, and a rudder at the back mm -hmm. and, you know, a biplane. Certainly we've moved to more of a, a mono wing structure um, shortly after that, but they moved from warping wings into control surfaces at that point. Am I right? Correct. Yep. Yeah. For the most part, I think a couple of the very early World War One designs um, still did some wing warping. And, and that's what's interesting about World War One and, and aircraft development through the Second World War as well, the airplanes that we started with in World War One were very different from the airplanes that we ended with in World War One, and the same thing could be said about World War Two. Just the the rapid development that uh, war brings on, really, to 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 get better than the next guy. 
right? Yeah. More importantly, the sudden availability of money. <laughs> exactly. Fuel that rapid development. Yep. So let's go. When would you say would be the next kind of major innovation then? I mean, I guess would we be talking World War II at this point? Were we pretty much this? I mean, because I think of like there was that uh, kind of golden era between, you know, the peacetime between World War One and World War II, specifically in the United States, when, um, you know, the roaring 20s into the 30s, where we started to see, um, what's the plane, like the GB or things like that, like the yep, racing planes, the racing airplanes. Like that, mm -hmm. where really Art Deco and Art Nouveau and the furniture world, and the architecture world began to leak over into, into uh, aviation. Um, yep. And that's when we started to see some really crazy things happening. That was more aluminum at that point. Am I right? What kind of wood was being used there? If anything? Yeah, yeah. Through the twenties and thirties, metallurgy started to catch up and certainly on the, on the military side of things, I suspect that's when the military started playing with, with all aluminum uh, designs mm -hmm. uh, on the civilian side, uh, steel kind of became the, the material of choice for fuselages steel tubing to get that kind of that art deco look they could do different bending with steel they you, they could use different processes with steel and, and and some steel tubing is you know for its strength is is lighter than a wood structure in, in some cases so a lot of fuselages went to steel tubing still covered in fabric and uh the wings were typically still wood uh spars with with wood ribs to, to save on weight in that case. Uh, all of it's still covered in fabric. Now, when you get into the 1940s, particularly right after World War II for civilian, uh, you start you still see a lot of uh, steel tube fuselage covered in fabric and, and wood spar wings, but you start seeing a lot more aluminum, stamped aluminum ribs for those wings rather than the labor-intensive uh, uh, truss design ribs. And that's when mm -hmm. my airplane was built in 1946. And it is a steel tube fuselage with a wood spar wing and aluminum ribs. I imagine some of that comes down to the actual manufacturer as well. I mean, when you were relying heavily upon the wood components, yes, at least with the machinery that we had then. I mean, you know, CNC changes the flips the script entirely, and you actually could manufacture wood parts a lot easier today on mass than back then. You were still relying upon a guy with a draw knife, you know, exactly. <laughs> to do that kind of shaping. I mean, uh, because it really, I mean, it's not, it's not symmetric. I mean, no. Bernoulli tells us <laughs> that it definitely doesn't need to be, it has to be asymmetric in order to create that Bernoulli effect for the, the lift. So yeah, really manually intense, but it also, it's an interesting point when you say the wings, because that is, I imagine that is the heaviest part, right? It's the largest part. It's the largest surface. So, well, as to the engine, obviously, that's probably mm -hmm. the heaviest part. But yeah. <laughs> you know, from a um, from a, a, a volume perspective, that's got to be pretty heavy. Yeah, yeah. You certainly, I, I suspect, through the twenties and through into the forties, particularly particularly on the civilian side, you start seeing move away from from some of the wood, uh, based simply upon an engineered material is more. Uh, an engineering material is just going to be a little bit more consistent or, or wholly more mm -hmm. consistent, right? You don't have to have somebody whose job is to look at every board as it comes in and mark defects that need to be cut around to, yeah. to, 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 
to make grade, right? You just, well, we got a load of steel tube, we're going to build a fuselage uh, or, yeah. or stamp out a bunch of ribs. And, and it's all about that ease of manufacturing. You know, early on, it was the, you know, a two guy shop. We can get this material cheap. We know how to work wood. We're going to do it with wood. And as, as time goes on, it goes, okay, we need to build these a lot faster than we are now. And, and how do we do that? Well, and I can imagine that's really when plywood started to come into its own as a manufactured material. You can you can grade, you can peel a log, you can you know essentially by peeling a log you can see all those defects and you can very easily cut around them and produce sheets and more importantly farm that out to you know a peeling mill and then buy the sheets or buy buy the actual panels to a certain grade and allow a lot even bending you know um, can be done. A lot easier there and it's interesting because the um actually i'm going to get the title of this right because i keep referring to it as the wood and aviation book it's the report national advisory committee for aeronautics is this mm -hmm. yeah um naba or aircraft woods their property selection and characteristics report number 354 i love it mm -hmm. but there's several parts in here where they go into great detail about compression defects and compression wood but as it goes on the this um this report continually says, you know what? It doesn't really matter. If you can get the size in the wood, you can build an aircraft out of it. Right. Because as they started to do more of that plywood type thing, and as more um, more and more species became available and more and more um, where we weren't necessarily relying upon that super, super, super long red spruce in order to get that single spar, uh, we were able to make a lot of things work. So that the, the the technical specs, the technical requirements, the stuff we were talking about early on in this about, you know, the length and the compression strength and all that stuff starts to not be as important. Um, you know, kind of like you were saying with the Wright brothers, like they put this huge engine on there and actually in the Wright brothers, one of their books, one of the books about the Wright brothers, they talk about how they quickly realized that, Oh crap. Like we've got way more horsepower than we need. Like we can, we could have gone by with a lot less, um, and, and still been able to get the, the lift because of course they had this like 28 foot wingspan. It's crazy, crazy stuff. Um, so I have a question. We're talking yep. about steel and aluminum and, and you know, still we have some wood in, in some parts of it and certainly wood major role in things like around the cockpit and uh, you know, all the, the dashboards and interior components, that was a lot of plywood. How about the propellers? Are they still wood? Yeah, and and wood propellers persist today. Um, as, I think so. as, mm -hmm. And and propellers were very commonly wood uh, up through the late 1940s, and and after that, metal propellers, aluminum propellers, um, were also becoming available. Uh, my airplane was originally sold with with an aluminum. I'm sorry, a wood propeller. Uh, it's now it's been upgraded if you want to say upgraded to, to, to aluminum in the past that that's still there, but typically, uh, ash maple, there's some walnut that's been used in the past for, 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 uh, propellers, but certainly always hardwoods. Um, mm -hmm. but they're inexpensive to, to produce and, 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 and they, um, provide pretty good, sh uh, shock reduction for the engine. Uh, because mm -hmm. they can flex a little bit with those power pulses. A metal prop is objectively a little bit harder on the bearings on the engine than a wooden it, wooden prop is. And uh, Interesting. Can can you can you dive into that a little bit more? Talk to well first of all, uh power pulses. What uh, what's that about? What are you talking about? Uh, yeah, each time one of those one of those cylinders fires on on an on a on an engine and an airplane engines are a little bit oh, different okay. than car engines where you know my my airplane is a four cylinder engine. 
but the the cylinders are very large, and 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 at redline, it, it's two thousand three hundred RPM. They spin relatively slow compared to a car engine, so you do have pretty pronounced power pulses, and a, and a wooden prop will um, help to absorb some of those pulses, and you actually you get a little bit of a smoother. Uh, smoother running engine out of it. No, not that a metal prop is going to make an engine fail any faster, but uh, right. there there's certainly some distinct advantages to a wooden propeller. A wooden propeller is much lighter than a metal propeller. I think my airplane weighs 12 pounds more because it has a metal propeller on it. I've considered going to a wooden propeller just to save those 12 pounds. 12 pounds means I can carry two more gallons of gas. So it's hey, a, that's you know, important. That's yeah, important. So this is what I say in aviation. A, a pound is, is a huge deal. You know, my airplane, if I put two people in my airplane, which is, it's just got two seats, I probably can't carry full fuel. So the FAA tells me my airplane can only weigh 1,220 pounds when it takes off. So then there's the empty weight. And so it depends on what equipment you have in your airplane that how much that useful load is. The first, if you if you see somebody post an airplane for sale, the first question on Facebook is going to be, "What's the useful load of this airplane?" Interesting. So, so uh, obviously, there's a thousand variables to consider here when it comes to miles per gallon. But mm-hmm. you know, assuming you're you're trying to conserve fuel, how far is two gallons going to take you? Two gallons. I burn. Uh, just over four gallons per hour with my 65 horsepower engine. So I can go another half right. hour with two gallons. So, I mean, that's a pretty good distance though. <laughs> I mean, you think about uh, running and having that extra two gallons is kind of a big deal. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, we look at, you said what, ash, maple, top choices for wooden propellers. Um, the Wright brothers did it in spruce, if I remember correctly. Um, they may have, I, I, I'm not sure actually. Yes. Yes, in fact, I have a photo of it at Kitty Hawk. The original propeller is like it's all beat up and everything, but yeah, it was uh, it was made they also, of the same material. They also had very long propellers. I think their propellers were almost nine feet long, and they spun at yeah. I want to say like one thousand two hundred RPM. Like they were they were very slow spinning, very long propellers that they used for that right. airplane, which would be and you said. You said uh, normal red line was 2,300 today? For, for my airplane, it uh, depends on the, the engine. Uh, some of them are up to 2,700. So, But they're okay. almost always less than 3,000. And what's the what's the size of a propeller today, or at least on your plane? My airplane is a 74-inch propeller, so just over six 74. feet. Okay. Well, yeah, it's a big difference. Yeah. So um, Ash, I mean, Ash, again, makes sense because you've got that, you know, the, those little accelerations and possible decelerations, but more importantly, those power pulls you're referring to. And it's funny because now that, like, I can hear, I can hear an engine, like mm-hmm. an airplane engine, and, and I know exactly what you're talking about now that I'm thinking about it. Um, and we, we forget about that because you're right, that is kind of a lower RPM as compared to some of the things that we may be used to. Um, yep. So you, you've got the, that flexibility that ash is going to provide. What's surprising to me is that maple is a top choice because maple is terrible. It's quite brittle um, from that perspective. But I guess when you're talking 72 inches and I guess the thickness is, I mean, at the, at the, the, the arbor, the, the axle, the, the center, the hub, yeah. whatever, whatever the technical hub, there you go. That makes a lot more sense. Um, you know, it's, it's quite thick. It's probably three to three and a half inches thick. Yeah, there, I would think. for sure. Mm-hmm. And then certainly you've got that, that twisting shape. Um, but even then the, the back of it, or I, what I would call the spine of the propeller is still probably one and a half inches. I would think, I mean, it feathers out. So yeah, I guess, thickness it still holds pretty strong and we're talking like six foot total correct 
So correct, and, and they're not, and they're diameter. not, yeah, and they're not. Uh, the 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 wood itself isn't twisted. It's it's a layup of uh, many half inch, three quarter inch pieces of stock mm-hmm. that are then carved into that shape. So it is. It's a right. laminate, well, typically yeah. a laminated uh, construction. Uh, fair enough. Yeah, that that's actually exactly what the Wright brothers did. They took three different pieces, you know, and fanned them out. Um, and glued them together and hit them with a draw knife and shape that. So mm-hmm. there again, you essentially have plywood, um, you know, yep. laminated together. Uh, it's interesting. So yeah, that I would. And, and, and yeah, I always, I always think about like, and, and a lot of these MOR, MOE tests are done, you know, over uh, um, a variety of lengths, but the standards, I can't remember the length now for the standard, um, but they're, they're shorter than um, three feet, I think. And if we're talking, you know, the, the hub being in the center of a 72-inch propeller, so that you're about three feet on either side of that, there would be some flex, a lot more flex. So what I'm saying is with maple, normally it doesn't have a lot of flex, but a three-foot length is certainly going to flex a little bit more and absorb that shock a little bit more. I still think ash would be better. And you often- Does it get to a point where there's too much whip and it can cause, like, feedback? There could be. I, 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 I'm sure that's a, a consideration when when they're you know doing a new design. Um, but right. uh, I'm not entirely sure. You know, you see a lot of, of, of different species laid up as well. Maple and mahogany is a, a popular choice for you know what a bear propeller. Um, you know, and and then there's companies such as Cato Props that make propellers today that are um, wood core with with a composite overlay. Um, which are very strong propellers and very popular in, you know, kind of the experimental high-performance crowd. And um, the way they kind of twist is they they kind of can, they kind of twist a little bit flatter at high power settings to help get a, a better bite out of the air for, for kind of that acceleration. Then they kind of twist back to a, a steeper pitch at cruise to, to drop the engine RPM. They've got a pretty interesting technology there so it's uh i never thought about that yeah but the the faster it goes the more twist you're going to see or you can manipulate that twist you know that's fascinating really cool and actually in a lot of ways uh, i i think i mean a a metal prop might give you a little bit more test data but i can't i imagine you could get the same amount uh, of test data the problem would be the reproducibility yeah, due to wood being an organic product, you can get some great test um, test data, um, but then like you make another one and it varies slightly. So you have to test like a hundred of them and do an average of all the above. But I would think it would have a sweeter um, sweeter feel um, being wood because it is that organic product. They, they do, and 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 really the, the the only big advantage for an airplane like mine for a metal prop is I get slightly higher performance because I can have a slightly thinner cross section of that prop. I have. A, the prop itself has a little bit less drag. Um, whether it's worth the 12 pounds to me, I, if, if, if I had been the one to do the the rebuild in 1992, I would have put a wood, prop, wood propeller on it. But I'm not about to right. go spend you know $2,000 on a new prop <laughs> because I've already got one. So. Come on, man. You're a woodworker. You know how to laminate wood together. <laughs> so, so, so we can get into the experimental and the home-built thing, but but my airplane is a, is a certified airplane, so I, yeah. the FAA tells me which propellers I'm allowed to put on that airplane. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah. Well, you know, you could build your own and take it over to Kill Devil Hill and 
although that's a national park now. So you probably get arrested just as fast <laughs> as you would by the FAA. Putting a on it. Maybe don't do that. Um, yeah, but but certainly, yeah, Cato, pro, you know, the the wood continues in in propellers, um, in, in in less. It's it's less common, but but they're still out there. And and one of the other nice things about a wood propeller is, is they're a little bit more forgiving of an oopsie. If I if I ran into something with my metal propeller, it would likely destroy my engine. If I ran into the same thing with a wood propeller, the propeller would shatter. But there's a good chance my engine would be okay. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that's true. It's designed to fail, right? Yep. Before it takes everything else out. Now, now, either way, again, Mr. FAA is going to come tell me I have to tear my engine apart and make sure it's okay, <laughs> and then put it back together. Well, I, but, and I would, I would imagine, as a as a pilot who's putting your hands, you know, your life in the hands of this plane, you probably would want to do that as well. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's not one of those things you guess at. And, ah, sure, it'll be fine. It'll Throw be some fun. dirt on it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So we move, we move into World War II, we move beyond World War II into the 50s, and we're really hanging, you know, it's, it's metal at this point. I mean, just the general feel of the country is, yep. you know, wood is becoming less and less, uh, it's becoming like an inferior material. Um, Absolutely. We saw that, we saw that in skyscrapers, we saw that in, in automobiles and everything. Um, so now we're seeing the pendulum kind of swing the other way in, other industries i you know certainly we all have wood dashboards to some extent in our in our cars now or in the mm-hmm. fancy cars have all kinds of italian veneers and things like that the amount of veneer that goes into a bentley and the amount of money in veneer and the craftsmanship in a bentley is crazy now that's a bentley but mm-hmm. you know even your average bmw is going to have you know nice wood and wood veneers and solid wood in some instances um certainly it's made its way fully back into our homes as feature walls. It's always been the, the backbone of stick frame housing and residential housing. How about the aviation industry? Let's let's come to today and where do we see it today? Yeah, certainly post I mean. exactly. Certainly post nineteen fifty wood becomes more of a, a boutique and, and, and the the uh, the exception that proves the norm than 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 actual commonplace. You still see it persist a little bit in some aircraft, but certainly today, the most wood you're going to see is is something like a lightweight foam core plywood being used in cabinetry of of business mm-hmm. jets. Um, yeah, that's probably going to be the biggest use: cabinetry, tables, things like that that are very lightweight but are meant to look upscale. It's meant to be the the Bentley of the sky and right. get that, that real wood veneer, but likely underneath that veneer is foam or, or some other mm-hmm. very lightweight core. Yeah. Some kind of honeycomb um, mm-hmm. product as well. I've seen a fair bit, you know, what, what we run into in aviation today, we see parallels in like the RV world and yeah. the boat world where all of those weight is consideration, um, you know, certain degrees more in other industries, but they all, there are, um, panel making companies that you know specialize in foam specialize in honeycomb some of them use various uh, de- uh degrees of recycled cardboard material i don't think much in the aviation industry because of a stress issue but really what we're talking about now is aesthetic yep. you know make it as pretty as you can and keep the weight down you know for all the interior type stuff do we see it structurally um commercial commercial aviation do we see wood being used as a structure anymore not that i'm aware of in a commercial aviation i think so mm-hmm. and certainly once you move to jets no more propellers no more propellers yep and, and and that that changes that changes the game entirely from a physics perspective from a stress 
um, uh, perspective, it's an entirely different mechanism. Um, wings certainly wouldn't see any of that. Fuselage, no. So then we've got like the home builders, the yep. kit builders. You know, we've got the same thing with kayaks, <laughs> kayaks and yep. canoes. Um, so talk to me because you just said the FAA is going to have real problems if you don't put, you know, the propeller they tell you. How do the home builders get away with this, or, or, or what's the exception here? There's there's regulation in the Federal Aviation Regulations that that has provision for. Uh, home-built aircraft or, or more officially experimental amateur-built aircraft, uh, depending on who you are, that, that'll scare your mother one way or the other more. Uh, <laughs> how you say that. Um, but yeah, it, it's if you build an airplane yourself, that is that is an experimental amateur-built or, or colloquially a, a home-built airplane, and kind of the sky's the limit. You can They let you do whatever you want to do. And, and this is kind of the FAA's way of saying, hey, we, we got to where we are in aviation by research and development. The big companies are going to keep doing it, but the little guy can keep doing it too. Um, but just be aware of what you're doing. And, and if you can carry passengers, you have to have a placard in front of them that says this is an experimental airplane. <laughs> you <laughs> fly at your own risk. Um, but, so but how does that work? Like, I mean, what is, what does the airport say? Like as long as it it's classified, like they can wash their hands and they're not liable for issues, or how does that work? Yeah, I've never heard of any concerns. Is you know, once in the aviation world, experimentals pretty well received. Um, mm-hmm. There's an, an experimental. <laughs> It, it, it's it, it's somewhat of a misnomer to call some of these airplanes experimental, right? There are right. things like the Vans RV series, which is an aluminum airplane, but it's a kit airplane that, I mean, there's thousands and thousands of them. They have a great record. They're fully engineered. The difference is instead of the factory building it, they're sending you a kit and you're putting it together like a big boy Erector set. And, right. uh, and, and you know, the, the FAA rule is you have to – the home builder has to build 51% of the airplane to, for it to be considered an experimental amateur built airplane. So all these kit manufacturers are always kind of jockeying to see how close they can get to that 49% so they can say that, hey, you can build this airplane in 800 hours or, or whatever it is instead of 3,000 hours. Um, now, when it comes to, to wood, which is kind of where I gravitate, you know, I've owned um, a Cessna in the past, some, some legacy aluminum airplanes, and I'm I'm a member of a club. I can fly some aluminum airplanes as well, but I finally found the salt. I, I saw the light on antique airplanes and that's where the real fun is, which is when I bought my champ. And uh, so I kind of gravitate towards the wood and, and wood is still very popular as a home building material. It's probably not the most popular. I mean, there's enough aluminum kit manufacturers out there that people can just buy a kit and put it together, but there's certainly, um, popular to build wood and, and particularly with the scratch builders the ones that say i i don't want to buy a kit i want to get some raw material and a set of plans and i want to build an airplane mm-hmm. and there's there's a certain romance to that that i see versus you know well every you know, there's a there's a van's rv in every other hangar at the local airport i want something that's different um right and so my goal, I'd like to build a 1928 design called a Peaton Pole. It's a monoplane high wing with an open cockpit. It just looks like a whole lot of fun to me. And it's an all wood construction airplane. And and for those that want to build an airplane, there's a lot of sources still. The the biggest one, aircraft spruce and specialty, where you can order your lumber. And, you know, particularly for, um, 
you know, kind of your your hand tool listeners, Shannon. Mm-hmm. Aircraft Spruce sells lumber stock for every size, right? So, so you don't need any milling machinery to, to, to do this. I can order a quarter by quarter cap strip, quarter by three eighths, quarter by half, anything that's on a set of plans. You can buy the raw material and all you need is a miter box, a saw and a hammer to build one of these. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm on their site right now looking at the spruce and it's fascinating. Like spar stock, uh, cat strips, booze kits, sparse kits, Yep. Um, all the T-stringers, everything. That's fascinating. Man, that's now, a beautiful spruce too. Now I'm I'm a certain sort of masochist that says, you know, I don't want to pay for shipping from from Chicago or Atlanta or, or one of Aircraft Spruce's place. I want to I want to find this material locally, which I've tried a number of times, and I understand why people give up and they just order the spruce because it is very difficult to find wood that grades to an aircraft grade, particularly yeah. for the for the bigger spot parts. Now that said. You got to understand. I think you, you say it a lot with furniture. Like well, you don't need the high grade wood because most of the stuff you're doing is small pieces, and that's the same thing with airplanes, right? I can go find a two by four at Lowe's, and I can probably find a good amount of quarter inch by quarter inch cap strip in that in that board. I'm going to do a lot of milling. I'm going to throw a lot of it away, but I could do something with that board. Um, now, when we get to the spars and things like that, then you need long pieces that are 16 feet long by six inches wide. Uh, yeah, and, and it's got to be quarters on or riffs on, and it's yeah. going to be it's going to be more difficult to find that lumber, particularly here in the Midwest. I've tried, you know, eastern white pine is very popular with home builders. It's just a little bit weaker than Sitka spruce, but it's 15 percent lighter. It, it's a it's a it's a good analog, but at least here in the Midwest, I can't find it. That's that's clear enough to do anything with. Um, yeah, well, you've got a lot of competition in that market as well. Um, right. For Billboard. higher higher turn rate, higher profit margin, and lower waste. Um, so you can get you know you, you can get this type of you know spar material, and and I'm looking at uh, aircraft spruce right now and just some of their parts uh, sizes for parts, and I mean hell, they're selling up to 18 foot, mm-hmm. 24 foot, excuse me. Um, all the way from like eighth inch thick uh, beyond one inch thick and variety of sizes up to like six inches wide. So like real boards here. Um, But, you know, Eastern white pine, you got the flooring industry, you've got the, uh, the, the paneling industry, you've got the plywood industry, you've got, you know, cabinetry, there's so much competition for it that um, mainly the higher turn rate means that nobody, yeah, it's going to be very difficult to find spruce at least, you know, you're competing with luthiers you know, yeah. at that yeah. point, and they need much smaller stuff. Now they need wider stuff, but um, and they also probably need an even higher grade. That's a that's a whole other topic. We've talked about tone woods. That's a different topic. Yeah. <laughs> um, still, this this is fascinating. And like I was looking, you'd sent me a link to another company, um, Fisher Fisher Flying. Yeah. Um, that has kits. Yep. And they have a couple aircraft in here that are wood aircraft or or a mixture of things it's funny because they specifically call that wood is nature's composite uh, on here which i like that <laughs> yeah i think fishers i think every one of fisher's designs is is wood now now certainly some of their struts and stuff they're going to use other materials with but uh, the 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 core structure is wood of all of their airplanes and yeah everything from kind of aerobatic biplanes to traveling airplanes you can kind of wood works for a lot of different uses I see this a lot in the boat world. Um, I think of a company called Chesapeake Lightcraft that mm-hmm. sells, um, and they're using plywood, um, CNC parts for plywood for, you know, think of like a kayak and the, um, 
not the ribs, but the, I can't remember what the term they use for it, but it, I would think of them as like um, bulkheads almost. Um, and they'll cut out these, these like hoop shapes that you then can skin around them for the, for the kayak. Right. And they're using, you know, high quality Marine grade plywood, usually Brunzeal or, or um, um, oh shoot, uh, Hydrotech or Aquatech, Jobert products for that. And, you know, CNC work, takes the large portion of the heavy lifting out of like the home woodworker and everything else can be done with the, you know, epoxy and a spoke shave, essentially. Right. Like you were saying, you're going to miter box to make cross cuts, um, a little bit of shaping, um, but and a lot of sanding, obviously. And I'm looking at, I'm looking at one, um, oh shoot, what is this aircraft? The R80 Tiger Moth right mm -hmm. now on Fisher. And just looking at the picture, yeah, you can see, uh, it would take very few tools to do this. You you don't even need to be a woodworker, frankly. No. <laughs> you could just and, and most of them, and most a, of us aren't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's really kind of interesting, huh? So I, I find that kind of I don't know heartwarming in some respect. Like this is where we started. Like you said before, you know they have a high respect for where we started and how innovation continues forward. So the the boundaries maybe maybe we're being over romantic here, but the boundaries are still being pushed by these guys with you know, spoke shave and a draw knife and a miter box and yeah. some high quality spruce out there and testing and playing around. And, and maybe, maybe one day they'll like uncover something crazy, you know, maybe the winglet, you know, right. Southwest <laughs> yeah. Airlines and the 737s talk about what the winglet did for him. Maybe there's some dude in a garage who was building a wooden, you know, fabric skin plane somewhere. I thought, what if I put this little like turned up thing on the end? Yep. Maybe that started there. I'm going to say that that's where it started. I'm grabbing that right now. <laughs> Woodlovers out there. Yep. Somebody, somebody bent uh, a piece of uh, spruce into a winglet and it, you know, did this crazy tripping of the air, crazy lift effect. It's still alive and well, you know, and, and there's, um, there's other species out there too. If you're willing to grade them, you know, yellow poplar is a reasonable analog a lot of times for spruce, as long as you're able to, the worst part about yellow poplar is being able to count the rings to make sure it'll, it'll make great. <laughs> Sometimes those yeah, sure. are so blonde. It's, it's difficult to do it. In fact, I've, I've milled up some poplar. It's probably been a year ago now into some quarter inch cap strip. And I keep saying, maybe I'll, I'll build a rib or two out of them <laughs> to, to get started, but haven't, haven't it's had it. tough because the tree, the tree grows so fast. It's really yep. hard to get tight space rings. You've got yep. to, you've got to really uh, go into but, a, an older tree or a dense forest yep. to get it. Um, you know, the, the second, at least, again, yep. what's that? At least today, the second most popular alternative to, to Sitka spruce is clear vertical grain Douglas fir. It's a little bit heavier yeah, and sense. it's a little bit stronger. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Sure. Unfortunately, even more competition for that species. Yep. Yep. Uh, it's it's out competing Western Red because its availability of Western Red has gotten so expensive because Douglas fir is out competing in the forests. Right. Uh, now there's more fir out there than there is Western Red. Now, uh, we'll, we'll kind of um, ha land this plane. Um, <laughs> By you, you put one last thing in your email to me about how wooden propellers are still popular for this experimental and in the vintage crowd. Um, mm -hmm. And you mentioned to me a company that's integrating wood and carbon, um, carbon fiber, I guess, to make propellers. Can you uh, 
Yeah, that, that was a, that, that Cato company that I that I discussed briefly oh, right. earlier, where it's the kind of the wood core, but they're they're putting composite. So they get the best of both worlds. They are able to make that cross section of that propeller thinner, competitive with a metal propeller, and still uh, retain the goodness of of that wood core, uh, mainly being lightweight. Okay, so the core is wood. The core. So then they can essentially mold the carbon fiber around that wood core. Correct. Yep. Um, that's fascinating. So that's like, now granted we have, you know, CNC machines to do this, but that's like, that's like pattern maker work right there. Like to me, the superheroes of the, the superheroes for woodworkers are pattern makers and they're yep. kind of becoming extinct or have become extinct almost. But that's a, you know, I'm sure certain that there's a lot of CNC work being done in order to create that core, especially from a consistent manufacturing perspective. Oh, certainly. But, yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. Yeah, because the stiffness. I mean, I, I'm looking at three carbon fiber bikes right now in the room with me, um, and it's funny because there's different. Um, I've got a 2014 carbon bike that, like, the carbon fiber used on it is laughable compared to my, you know, Trek Demani 2022, <laughs> like right. 810 series carbon fibers compared to who knows what series carbon fibers on this, uh, this uh, specialized. And then my triathlon bike, a totally different type of carbon fiber um, where weight wasn't as important because it's all about aero. Um, and they've got these big, big beams and tubes and things like that. But the, the molding of that is such an incredibly labor intensive and, um, expensive process because these are hollow um you know hollow tubes that are being created or hollow forms that are being created when you can stuff the core have like a solid base to wrap the carbon around at least it's my understanding that dramatically simplifies the molding process because it doesn't have to like uh hold up under its own you can actually like almost laminate it around the outside right i could be totally wrong here but still that sounds like I don't know. It sounds kind of ingenious, actually. Very cool. Yeah, and you still see certainly wood spars in many aerobatic airplanes. You know, the biggest thing wood's got going for it when it comes to a wing spar that aluminum doesn't is there is no um, limit for fatigue, right? As long as you don't exceed that that wood member's strength limit, you can come right up to it as many times as you want without fatiguing oh, that, that piece, right? So, right? so these aerobatic airplanes are going from positive 10G to negative 10G several times a minute doing all of these, uh-huh. these different maneuvers. Wood still no is... work hardening. Exactly. There's no fatigue, no work hardening, and it's it, wood is still the ideal material for, for that, uh, that airplane. Love it. There's the thought to end this up. Also, the fact that I've just come full circle because listeners to Wood Talk will have heard my recent lamenting about my holdfast stopping working, um, which I've discovered has to do with the work hardening that's happened over the last 10 years (laughs) by removing the outer layers and essentially exposing because it was the scale, Uh the harder scale left on by the blacksmith to make it look kind of cool and vintagey. That scale is a harder material and therefore work hardened and it kind of created a work hardened outer shell around it once i remove that they work just fine again but that that continual um stressing and and i'm unstressing stressing relaxing stressing relaxing it eventually work hardened but uh fascinating yeah you're right wood doesn't wood doesn't do that as long as you don't exceed as long as you don't exceed your point yeah you know that's really cool well bravo to wood (laughs) 
Indeed. <laughs> As if the people already listening to this podcast weren't woodophiles enough, <laughs> uh, we can we can say that's that's fascinating. Alex, this has been really cool. Like, I don't know how much wood we actually talked about. Well, we talked about wood enough, but to me, um, it's just really interesting to see. Uh, you know, we talk about wood constantly as being used in so many different products. I mean, when you talk about cellulose from as basic as paper, but all the way through pharmaceuticals, but to see something as ad advanced or cutting edge, if you will, maybe aeronautics is not that cutting edge anymore. Um, you know, certainly we're not using wood on the space shuttle. Uh, no. <laughs> we're drawing a line there, I suppose. Um, if there are any NASA engineers out there who want to correct me, I definitely want to talk to you. I want to know what wood is being used in the space shuttle. Uh, well, there's no space shuttle anymore, um, but you get the idea. The fact that there still is a place for, you know, good old fashioned wood in something what I still view to be as cutting edge as the aviation industry, I think is fascinating. So thank you. Thank you for sharing your expertise on this whole thing. And uh, yeah. Next time in, I'm out in your neck of the woods, I'm, I'm taking you up. I'm going. I'm, uh, no, you're taking me up. I'll take you up. That? Yeah, I keep my airplane at a. I keep my airplane at a little grass strip a mile from my house, just like it would have been eight decades ago. Just the way it's supposed That's to be. Fantastic. So. <laughs> That's fantastic. And then uh, I'll bring I'll bring some uh, some ash, and we'll laminate up our propeller and give it a go. We'll give just it a try. We'll find an experimental airplane to throw it on. There we go. There we go. Yeah, and don't tell my wife. <laughs> She's terrified of flying, let alone me building a propeller in an experimental aircraft. Yeah, that's definitely not the term I would use. Oh, no. It's not experimental. So, uh, what was the other term? Experimental or what? Amateur built. There we go. Or, or home built. I don't know about yeah, like 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 the the airplane I want to build is from 1928. There's been thousands of them built. I, I would hardly call there it an go. experiment at this point. Right. Field tested aircraft. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like that. Fascinating stuff. Thank you so much. This has been really cool. Yeah, I appreciate it.